Hi, I'm Super Buzz. Welcome to the Net Hero Podcast. If you've not listened, where have you been? Come on, get involved. We talk about all things energy, sustainability, and of course, net zero. We're here to talk about business and what it can do to make the planet better. We're here to talk about science. We're here to talk about you. So if you'd like to be involved, then do drop us a line. Listen in, tell your friends, tell your business partners, subscribe. And for all your news around net zero, follow us on futurenetzero.com. Now, on to this week's episode. Hello, I'm Sue Bose. Welcome again to another edition of the Net Hero Podcast. Today, I'm going to talk about magic. Producing materials out of thin air. In fact, capturing materials out of air. Can it happen? Direct air capture to produce materials that we can use? Well, one company has been doing this for quite a while. In fact, for nearly 20 years. New Light Technologies and its boss, uh, Mark Hiroma, joins me today. Uh, Mark, before we start, people have heard of the term carbon capture uh, and they kind of think of it as a very deeply kind of technical process. I said at the beginning that, you know, you could capture things out of thin air. Is it actually so? Can you actually capture carbon molecules, take them out of the air from the CO2 we breathe, and turn them into materials. Well, a um, lot, lot of things there. So let's let's get started. First of all, uh, I always take issue with the uh, the word magic. We've spent twenty years and a lot of time and a lot of money to develop a technology. So <laughs> I wish it was as easy as magic, but <laughs> but it certainly wasn't. I started this when I was in my young twenties, and I'm now a man with plenty of gray hair and in my forties. So <laughs> it wasn't magic. It was a magical journey. <laughs> <laughs> but I tell you what, when you when you see a, a tree that grows from a seedling uh-huh. in nature, and you know to the extent, if I have this fig tree in my house and I've watched it grow, I'm looking at it right now from a two foot tall tree to a ten foot tall tall tree, and boy, is that a beautiful thing! And if there's magic, it's right there. You know, how did that thing grow mm-hmm. from a seedling to a now this beautiful ten foot tall? tree aside from me you know kind of giving it my my loving talk uh when i water it weekly <laughs> there was something really tremendous happening and what was happening is that that tree has been pulling carbon directly out of air and turning it into solid materials that yep. that that trunk that runs up the middle these gorgeous leaves that that spit out the sides this is carbon that was invisible greenhouse gas in the air that was turned into these magnificent structures so this magic that you refer to happens all day, every day in nature. Some is pulling straight out of thin air, but there's other places in nature where you have much more concentrated carbon. So take, for instance, the bottom of the ocean floor. Mm-hmm. There's methane pluming out of these divides and other places. In estuaries, you have high concentration of methane. And that is where we started, which was we looked at high concentration methane uh, emissions. And we said, how can we turn those into more useful materials? What we developed was a technology that that captures whatever uh, greenhouse gas you're talking about. So whether it's concentrated methane emissions, concentrated carbon dioxide emissions, or we are also working with uh, partners that are in the direct air capture space who concentrate CO2 out of air and can feed it to us. What we do is we take that greenhouse gas, we feed it to microorganisms who make solid materials, those materials are being made all day, every day in nature. So our job over the past 20 years was to mimic these processes that happen in nature 
turn that greenhouse gas into useful materials. The technology, and, and you, you've nailed it there, it's something that's gone on in nature for, for so long, but it is very interesting. Basically, plants sequester carbon, right? And they always have done. And animals, we all do, right? The, the carbon is in our bodies. When you first looked at this, what was it that, that interested you? Because I don't think, have you got a science background or have you got a commercial background? Not to get too far back, but I was a huge <laughs> sort of science nerd in, in high school. I was on ah. the National National Oceanographic Science Bowl team where they ask you science questions and you buzz in and say dinoflagellate. <laughs> but in fact, I, I took so much science in high school that when I got to Princeton, I, I, uh, I was- You had enough. Some, yeah, well, not enough. I was a politics and political philosophy major because I liked uh, seeing ideas translated into real life. But I also did take math, chemistry, physics, because that, that was always behind there. But to your point, um, this was something that really myself and co-founder and then uh, all the wonderful team members that have joined us, you know, there was a lot to learn here. And in no small part, you know, why it, it took as long as it did. But yeah, that was a quite a, a technical journey from, from start to finish. If I get back to 2003, not much is going on in the world of climate science. There's a few small spaces. There's just, you know, the kind of knock-on from the Kyoto Protocol. And some governments are sniffing around the idea. Why were you attracted to it, which was a very nascent industry, this whole idea of sustainable well, sustainability in, in itself. What attracted you to this? Is it because of your interest in the oceans and, and the natural environment that you looked at this world? We were frustrated and we saw an opportunity. You know, it's when we look back now, I, it, sometimes the sentiment is, oh, well, nothing was going on back then. But in fact, not only was it going on back then, it was 10 years past the point when a movie came out that said, by God, we've got to finally do something. In the early 90s, that's what they were saying. So 10 years later, we were still very frustrated. And in this regard, it's not that much different than today, which is there's so much talk about taxation of carbon and burying carbon. Yep. And it faces a fundamental problem, which is someone somewhere has to pay for that. Now, we can debate the merits of it, and I think that there is plenty of, of merit in advancing both of those, those practices. But on the other hand, there's a reason why it's gone so slow, and that is because people have to pay for it. So we said, all right, people can keep shouting at each other for the next forever until we fall off a cliff, but why don't we look for something that we agree on? What, what really captivated us was this idea that we can probably all agree that if, if greenhouse gas is going to flow into the air, it'd be better to use it as a resource to make products, right? We're not using it anyway. Let's use it to do something. This is what nature does, by the way. Greenhouse gas is nature's favorite feedstock to make materials. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So let's see if we can come up with something. Now, it wasn't immediately, let's turn to nature, but relatively quickly in, in those early days, it was where, you know, which technologies exist where you can do something. And then what we discovered was that there are micro organisms in nature that are consuming greenhouse gas and turning it into these high value materials. And so our question was, can we do that at scale where we can make this useful? Um, and that, that became the journey and the mission. Let's do a little bit of science. And as I said, the audience is, is pretty smart, but they're not super geeks. So please take it down a little level. People have heard of bacteria, people have heard of fungi, things like that. What are you using uh, you talked about algae. What are you using and what are they doing to the free carbon that's either in the air or the methane you're talking about? And what material are they turning it into? 
we use two different kinds of, of microorganisms. Uh, one is called a methanotroph, and the other one is called a chemoautotroph. I won't go <laughs> more technical than that, but what those mean are you got a methane-eating microorganism, uh-huh. and you have a carbon dioxide-eating microorganism. Right. And so what they do is they use those gases as their, their carbon source, their food source, to grow. And as they're growing, one of the uh, little biomolecules that they make inside of their cells is a molecule called PHB. Right. So PHB is a carbon storage material, and almost all of life makes this. The human body makes it, plants, animals, and these microorganisms make it. And what's really fascinating about PHB is not only is it a carbon storage material, so basically things build it up as an energy reserve so that you can use it in times of stress or whatever. And what what, what our mission was, was to find those microorganisms, those, those methane eaters or those carbon dioxide eaters that would fill their cells with uh, more uh, PHB than their than their neighboring culture, right? So we went on a multi-year search looking in oceans, estuaries, front yard, backyard, wherever we could, trying to find these naturally occurring microorganisms that would eat this gas, use it to grow, and also use it to make this material inside their cells. That was sort of the first prong of the journey. Are these bacteria or are they are they fungi? What what are they? These are bacteria. These are bacteria, right? Okay. And so, thanks for explaining. They they absorb the carbon. They turn it into this material, uh, PHB. You called it, yes, a molecule that's out there. Where does PHB come into fruition? What will it come as? Does it manifest itself the way people can understand cotton being made, or does it come out as a residue that you can take and turn into something else, or 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 what sort of material is it that we can then utilize as people? Think of, uh, you have this microorganism, this cell, and a portion of that cell is going to be PHB. Right. And so what our job then is to separate the non-PHB from the rest of the cell mass, the mitochondria, the whatever other organelles are in there. And so what we do is we separate that that PHB and then we dry it and it, and it dries into a fine white powder. Right. And then once you have that fine white powder, we feed it into a machine called an extruder, which effectively heats up that powder. It comes out as these long sort of spaghetti strands, but they're really hot. We cool them down and then chop them into pellets. So then now you're holding these pellets of PHB purified from these uh, from the rest of the microorganism body. But this is effectively like this is microorganism mass. It's the, it's the polymer part of that mass. But now that you have it in pellet form, you can use it. Uh, in 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 ways very similar to plastic, so you can gotcha. run it in all the those existing equipment sources. So that's the idea. You're, what you're creating is a, a sort of a a carbon pellet, which is multi-use that you can put into manufacturing of goods or services, whatever, wherever you'd ne- normally use polymers. Is that is that where the the end game is? That's exactly right. So basically, think of this as you've solidified greenhouse gas, and now you can use it in the supply chain to help reduce the carbon footprint of the products that it's being used for. What we spent many years doing, and so it was finding the microorganisms, that was hard, <laughs> optimizing <laughs> yeah. those guys. Uh, but then uh, you know, getting that, uh, that uh, removal process to get to the yields and economics that you want, uh, and then finally functionalizing it. How do you get those pellets in different forms to uh, produce the same performance that the world is accustomed to? So, for instance, let's say you do all that really, really well, but yep. this stuff is ultra brittle and falls yeah, apart. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no one can use it. When you look at it, funny, doesn't do much good. So yeah. that those were kind of the major 
three pillars of our technological journey. We'll talk about the uses in a second. I just want to go back a stage. I assume all of this is just being done in a lab. This is all science. You're going to find these things. You're then growing them in labs, you know, trying to build it out. A lot of universities do this sort of stuff. It's great stuff, research. The hardest point is take the research into the business world. How did you get to that? Because obviously you must have had an end goal, which was thinking, okay, this stuff is great, but I've got to find a way I can turn this into a business use. Can you just talk me through your thinking, you and your colleagues, of how you got from that lab to kind of the idea of going to market? Mm, well, we always wanted to go to market. So the it wasn't, we, we were never doing research just for the fun of it. Um, the, the intent from day one was to see this grow to scale. Now, that the, the challenge is that that's much easier said than done. Universities are full of these projects that never go anywhere, that were great science, that never made it, aren't they? Well, and, and PHB is a great example of that because mm. there are literally thousands, if not tens of thousands of research papers on the creation of PHB from different substrates, some from greenhouse gas and some from sugar and plant oils and other things. Yeah. And, and so the, the basic science is frankly not that hard. If you leave out some orange juice on your countertop uh, and let it sit there for, you know, three weeks, you're going to grow something. <laughs> yeah, too right. <laughs> yeah, those microorganisms are going to have a little bit of PHB in there. And you might find a, a very basic extraction process. So the, the really simple of this is not that hard. Um, and so a lot of people have accessed the, 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 the basic concept in trying to do that. So what has held this thing back for decades, and, and that is the exact gap that you're talking about, which is how do you take it from lab or pilot to something that operates day in, day out with mm. high levels of consistency and has clear scalability? That was hard. So it took us years in the lab. And then we had a pilot plant where we were operating for about a decade. We moved in in 2007 and we finally crawled out of that cave <laughs> um, in 2017 to build our first commercial scale plant. And I tell you what, that is, you, you put your finger on, on the right place because that jump from we can demo it, we can pilot it to full commercial scale, um, that takes a lot of effort. And um, it was one of our biggest pride points, frankly, to, to bring our commercial plant online at full commercial scale and have it deliver day in, day out to customers around the world my son's in a band and they're trying to make it okay and he's got a day job it sounds like this was your day job but i hate to say but i've seen businesses scale i've been in my business myself what do you do when you're trying to do this because you still got to put food on the table were you trying to do other jobs to, to get the money in or, or how were you guys surviving when you were trying to scale or did you have a bit of money at least to help you try and build this because 10 years in a in a lab is a long time <laughs> A long time. Uh, you know, in the, in the very earliest days, like literally the the, the opening months of this, uh, myself and our co-founder, Kenton, uh, we were both working odd jobs. Uh, Kenton, Kenton was a, a valet. We both just graduated. Kenton right. was a bio, biomedical engineer at Northwestern. And um, I was a bellhop at a hotel. Uh, uh, I bet you were good at that, weren't you, Mark? <laughs> That was great. That was great. It uh, took took my craft very seriously. But uh, and then Kenton was a valet, and then we would drive out at night to some lab space. Uh, we did that for a while, and then we raised an early round of uh, friends and family right. capital. Yep. And then we just we had a very very small staff for a long period of time. So the the that initial capital raise and a couple of subsequent enabled us to go quite a distance uh, with a small staff. And, you know, we we're putting in triple time. I mean, um, 
there was a period of time when at our pilot facility, I think like 90% of the clothing that I owned was there. In other words, I, I would go home to sleep, but you know, that was our, we were just all in. So why didn't you give up? Yeah. I've been uh, having done this for 20 years that that question has come up and uh, there's different answers to it. Um, It was deeply important to me and the rest of our team to, to realize a vision that we all believe in really strongly for different reasons. But one of them is definitely, man, we are stuck in this. We have been stuck in this thing Mm. and it's not going nearly fast enough. And and everyone just keeps shouting at each other. And and look, there's been progress. Like I love what's happened in the renewable power space, but think about what's happened in the renewable power space. Why is it accelerating? It's accelerating because costs have dropped. Now governments have played an important role by, by helping nudge it along to get to the scale, et cetera, et cetera. But technology has to play an important role in this. I think everybody would like to see this problem solved. The challenge is that, you know, it, it, a lot of times it comes down to economics and, and that's a harder, that's a harder nut to crack. It is. So we just said, man, there's a real opportunity to do some serious good here. I think that combined with the fact that we were young enough where we didn't know <laughs> how hard it was going to be. I don't know if you, if you settled now, got a partner or kids, but it probably wouldn't have worked out easier in the early days. You know, I remember in the early days, someone telling me that yeah. bringing a new material to market classically takes 20 years. Correct. Yeah. I just, I remember thinking, sure, I know, definitely in the past, but not this time. No way. And here, here we are. are. You know, it's it's tw- twenty years and five months later, and uh, but we have brought a material to commercial scale. But it did, I tell you, it took a long time. <laughs> Let's talk about the material and where it's used now. And I think you know this is why I, you know I wanted you on the podcast. I thought it was a, a, a brilliant idea of what you've done. But the main thing is, it's always hard to see something come to market and make a difference. So you talked about there are certain brands. We won't go into the names, but you've got some big brands now using it as food materials, what sort of things? You're making cutlery, you're making straws, food boxes. What sort of things is the actual material being used for now? A lot of things, uh, definitely definitely those. So yes, cutlery, straws, uh, coatings for paper products. You know, if you think about your the cup that you that you drink at Starbucks, yeah. that's not a paper cup. Yeah. That's that's paper coated with, with plastic. About 5% of the weight is plastic, uh, which makes it uh, very environmentally challenging. In addition to, to those sort of items that are traditionally single-use items, we've also expanded into other elements of packaging, caps, closures. We're doing a lot of work right now in the fashion space. So from, you know, fibers to footwear and, and a number of things in between. You know, th- those are some of the big industries. But, you know, a- again, thinking about this as a solid form of greenhouse gas that happens to be a polymer, a naturally occurring polymer that, that can give you a fairly decent range of performance. There's a lot of places where this can go. And our goal is to use the material to help decarbonize a number of these spaces and products. And so we're really kind of just getting started in terms of, you know, all the different spaces that we hope to be in. I know that you did uh, work when you were at uni, when you're looking at kind of the issues of poverty. And sadly, world poverty has got worse over the last 20 years, not better. And this has always been the thing that I, I worry about. And I've said it before on the podcast about the drive to net zero at present is very much a, a Western and developed nations drive. And yet there are people in developing countries and poorer countries that desperately need these sort of climate solutions. How do you hope what you're building with New Light, you know, your, your products and the use of these things? Obviously, you should make money and there's nothing wrong with making money out of it. But there's also an element of kind of how do we make these things accessible to people from poorer nations? Can you see how this could happen? Is it something you're striving to do yourself? 
Uh, there's a there's a lot there. So one of the things that we really like about this is democratizing carbon impacts on, on, on carbon uh, reduction. So for instance, you know, as a consumer, it's often hard to participate it is. beyond, you know, some of the things that we all know about. Well, we all try to recycle. Yeah. And, you use the same bottle again and again. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So it's it's also frustrating, right? On yeah. a certain level. It's like, well, what, what more can I do? And then if, if, I, if, if I'm someone who cares and I can't do more, mm. boy, I start to feel a little bit like, are we really going to fix this thing? Yeah. And what I like about air carbon is that it puts physical products into people's hands. Greenhouse gas you can hold. And you can actually literally, by the weight of what you're holding, feel that that you're making a, a tangible difference. Now, I know for for someone who's, you know, as you described, if, if you're impoverished, that probably doesn't mean that much. No. But, you know, a lot of communities do have carbon emissions. Uh, think of landfills. Right. Those landfills sh should be instead of putting that carbon into into the air, we should take that gas and we should turn it into useful materials. Yeah. Now, hopefully that can create jobs, uh, local revenue streams and and help in, in that way. But I think, you know, maybe one of the biggest things that I hope we contribute is the general concept of we have to find places of consensus. I mean, we have been trying to convince each other of different things for so long. And again, we're going to do that while we shout each other, you know, crossing over the cliff. We've got to say, all right, we understand that the difference is on both sides, but let's search for the things that we agree on. And if we can do that, then maybe we can create scalable solutions that uh, can start to, you know, make real change at the pace that we need. And, and that can impact, you know, everybody. So that, that, that's our hope. One thing before we end, it's an interesting idea you've come up with, and, and it's a concept that we know here definitely in the UK, and it's probably kind of going around the world, to, to put a label on something, right? To say, you see it on food, right? How much fat, how much sugar is on it. You think, from what I've written, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're, you're saying there should be some sort of carbon footprint on product to say, this took this much carbon to make or whatever, to make people more aware of their impact. So it, tell me about this idea that, that you've got about that. Amen, brother. I've been preaching this for a while. <laughs> we, have, we have calories on every single we food do. item that we eat. So why can't we put a carbon footprint on every single product that we use? Now, it doesn't force anyone to change their carbon footprint, but it just gives you that awareness. We've got a couple problems in the carbon accounting space, but one of them is uh, this is improving, but there needs to be an increasing amount of consistency in terms of, look, give the entire planet the same rule book. Everyone Absolutely. keeps coming up with yeah. their own new sort of like this initiative and that initiative and, da -da -da. and it's like, let's just get one rule book. Everybody follows it. And I do think that every product should come with a label. Look, and then you can decide, do I care whether this cell phone case is a 10 and this cell phone case is a 3.2? Maybe you don't care. That's fine. But for the people who do, now they have an option, right? And I think that would have an overnight. I mean, can you imagine? Oh, no, it's a, it's an incredible thing. I think that that whole idea, you know, now you go to restaurants, people can see actually, not all, but many restaurants actually put the calories. It makes people think. Now, it doesn't mean you won't still have that pudding or whatever, but you're right. It makes people think. And that, I suppose, is one of the things that you, you're trying to get with air carbon. It's making people think about that the concept is always difficult, I find. And this is why, again, I like what you're doing, because what is one degree of warming or two degrees of warming? Well, you know, what is 10 tons mm -hmm. of carbon in the air? No one knows. But if you say, actually, this product 
is made with this and this one is made with this and you've got a shoe now that's taken out you know five grams of carbon or whatever it is it becomes something we can relate to that's 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 exactly right you know it's interesting you say that about the 1.5 degrees two degrees um if you do the math on this the difference is between having a healthy body temperature which in fahrenheit is uh, 98.6 and having a fever yeah. that if you had it for too long, you're, you're in real trouble. But I think you're very right to point out those are some examples of things we have to move beyond because they're not... It's not tangible. Boy, that doesn't grip the heart. When yeah. you talk, Man, I'm, I'm super concerned about 1.5 <laughs> degrees Celsius. Yeah. Well, it's hard to, to really feel that. But if you said, well, I'm concerned about having a, a, a fever that never goes away and gets worse. Okay, now we're talking about something tangible. So I do think carbon labeling could have a major impact. It doesn't force anyone to change anything. It just, it does force people to account for what they're doing and then communicate that and then let consumers decide. Before we go, what's the next step for air carbon? What are you hoping to do? Scale. <laughs> Scale and speed. We're looking to add more plants. We're building our, our second commercial plant here now in Ohio. We're uh, looking at other, other locations as well. The scale of what we do today, despite how proud we are, is still so small compared to of the size of the industry and what we need to do. And so one of our jobs is to figure out how do we how do we enable this technology to grow much faster? And so we're looking at a lot of different sites and structures and, and ways to do that. So that's that's now the next big phase for for new light and air carbon. So I'll be wearing air carbon jeans in five years' time, getting into my air carbon sneakers and going for a ride on my air carbon cycle is that right i drive down the freeway with my air carbon eyewear <laughs> I pull out my air carbon wallet uh to make a very carbon conscious purchase excellent uh, and it's all got a picture of you on it the the elon musk of carbon i like it i don't know about that we got a great team here and and uh honestly i feel feel blessed for that so Do you know what i i've really enjoyed talking to you thank you so much mark for joining us on the net hero podcast best of luck with air carbon if you want to have a look at it check it out guys that's really interesting stuff have a look at the website have a look at what they're doing fantastic work mark all the best with what you're doing we will be back with another episode of the net hero podcast next week if you've got a thought about what you've heard today from mark what you've heard about the idea of air carbon and greenhouse gas emissions being absorbed then let us know get in touch on social media and remember to follow the podcast until the next time see you then You've been listening to the Net Hero podcast with Summit Bose from Future Net Zero. Visit our platform for all things Net Zero. And if you or your business is doing great things on the path to Net Zero and want to be featured on the podcast, email nethero at futurenetzero.com. Follow us on social media. futurenetzero.com. Better business, better planet.